and the rest of us, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to read through uh, the first 25 verses together, if you would follow along with me. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? Now, the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So, with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. And the law is written by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues... And outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let us pray. O Lord, give us clarity. In this passage, enable us, Lord, to, to love one another and to love you more. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So, quite honestly, this is a tough passage. But I think if we, if we set it up a little bit and maybe put some boundaries, then it'll be clear as to what Paul is talking about, right? 
And so what I want to ask for you to kind of think about is, why are you here? Or uh, how do we know we're doing church right? right? Like at the end of the service, how can we say that was successful? Right? Is it because all the slides were spelled correctly or the backgrounds are pretty? Or is it because I, I greeted more than three people today? I had lots of donuts. Right? Or how do we know we did it right? We sang all the songs in the right key. Right? Or the speaker, he was pretty entertaining, and he held my attention for 20 minutes. Right? So how do we know we did it right? That is the question that we are going to head towards. And so in order to set it up, I want to go backwards a little bit, because actually chapters 12, 13, and 14 are kind of a, a unit of thought unto themselves. And I think... 12 and 13 will lend clarity and some, and will frame the discussion that we are, we're going to have in chapter 14, where, where he talks about um, how to use spiritual gifts. So what I'm going to do is, let's go backwards. We're going to go to chapter 12, uh, highlight some stuff. Chapter 13, highlight some stuff. And then we will land in our text for today. Okay? So in chapter 12... What do we have in terms of, we can know this for sure, regarding spiritual gifts? Okay. Well, in chapter 12, Paul talks about unity and diversity, right? And he uses uh, the illustration of one body with many parts. So what do we know about spiritual gifts so far here? Well, we know that every believer has at least one. So if you are a believer, you have at least one. Okay? If you don't know what yours is, I'm going to give you... (laughs) Give you some steps. There's no survey that you need to fill out. Here are the steps. Step one, read the Bible. Step two, pray. Step three, get involved in the local church. And that's where you kind of work these things out. There's no, there's no like magical discovery or pillar of Shekinah light that encompasses your body as you discover these things, right? But what he says is, you, the individual believer, has a specific role for, he uses in verse seven, the common good of the local church community. And he uses the body analogy. So if you, the individual believer, are not fulfilling that role, it's a detriment to the church body. So uh, is is anyone a doctor? Like a medical doctor? What is it called if if part of your body just stops cooperating? Do we want the church to be that? You see what I mean? We know, though, that uh, if parts of your body fall off, that's called leprosy. And I don't think any of us would want the church body to be leprous in that sense. Do you see what I mean? So if you're not, if you're not fulfilling your role to the body, then it's like a leprous body. Okay? So it's important to know that each believer has a part to play in the corporate welfare. Right? And it's easy to lose sight of that, especially in our culture today, because we're very individualistic. But, but Paul is... is emphasizing the importance of the communal aspect of believers. Oftentimes, a lot of people talk about attending church in, in this attitude, right? Like, what, what am I going to get out of it? How is this worship experience going to benefit me? What can this church do for me? The Bible says, if everyone is doing their part, you will get yours. The question he wants you to answer is, what are you doing? Are you doing your part as part of the body? Okay. At the end of chapter 12, and verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts or the greater gifts. So here's a question. How do we know or what metric would we use 
to measure whether or not a gift is a higher gift or a lower gift, you see, or a greater gift or a lesser gift. Does that make sense? What, what is the measurement or what is the metric that we would use? Well, it seems that Paul is saying that the measure we would use to determine whether a gift is greater is how it benefits the whole congregation, not how it benefits the individual, your own church experience, you see. And then we move to chapter 13, which is a very popular chapter. It's love, right? Often used, like in wedding services, for this, this beautiful romantic love. But in context, Scripture is not talking about romantic love. It is talking about love within the church body, right? So in the first little section, like the first three verses, we see that in order to use spiritual gifts... Love is necessary, otherwise the use of spiritual gifts is meaningless. Right? And the next section, verses 4 through 7, talks about the characteristics of this kind of love that is to be exercised amongst believers. And then at the end of chapter 13, we have this idea that, uh, of the permanence of love. That things like prophecies and tongues will cease, right? But love is permanent, okay? So love is kind of important. Now let's just sit on this for a second. Love. What is love? Right? The biblical or biblical picture of love. Right? Um, in 1 John, for example, chapter 4, we know that God loved us first, and then we love others. 1 John chapter 2 tells us that if we love one another, then we are revealing authentic faith, that we are children of the light. In John chapter 13, 34 to 35, our love for each other is a demonstration for outsiders or for those who are looking in, the gospel outworking as we commune together, right? And, he, and Jesus says, just as I have loved you. And that frames the particular kind of love that we are to exercise as a community of believers. So that means for us, <clears throat> love is not politeness. Hi, how are you? Doing well. Check, right? That's not love. Love is not sitting in a pew for an hour and a half while some bald Asian guy just talks and talks and talks. That's not love. Right? Love is framed by the self-giving and outpouring of Christ. You see, love is taking the place of a servant and washing your disciples' feet. Love is getting nailed to a cross for people who hate you and would spit at your face. Right? That is love. See, we think love is, I'm going to look for people who who I can relate with, or who I might like, right? There are certain qualifications in our eyes when we look at other people. That is a lovable person. That is a lovable person. The Bible tells us that Christ-like love is to love those who are unlovable, right? In Romans, it says that we, while we were still sinners, yeah, right? Okay. So that's, that is the type of love that we are talking about. And this is important because as we move forward in our discussion on spiritual gifts, love is necessary. The self-giving, giving of the self-love, right? <clears throat> because it is beneficial for the church family. All right, so here we are in chapter 14 then. First two words. Pursue love or follow the way of love. Chase love. Exercise a certain amount of obsession with love. So how do we do this? Well, you must proactively look for opportunities to give of yourself 
for the edification of other believers. Right? My dad, when I was younger, my mom's here, so she can cooperate the story. My dad, when I was younger, he, he would call me, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, but one thing in particular he would call me often is a bump on a log. Do you remember this at all? Not really. That's okay. Because he called me a lot of stuff. Uh, he, he used to call me a bump on a log. And what he meant by that is, especially, you know, when I was a teenager, I was just very self-involved. I just wanted nothing to do with anyone else. I was very self-involved. So the reason why he called me a bump on a log is because I never took... I was never proactive about anything. I never took the initiative for anything. He was like, son, you're like a bump on the log because you don't do anything until someone has to, someone has to tell you to do something. Or, or, do you know what I mean? Like, you don't, you don't go look for, for things to do, for ways to help people, ways to help out around the house, right? Anyone with teenagers would be like, yeah, I know how that guy feels, right? And so, with that, we should not be bump on the log Christians where we just sit there and wait. We need to love. Well, you know, I, I have generally good feelings for this other person in, the, in this auditorium, so that's, that's good enough. That's not biblical love, right? Pursue love. When we think of God's love for us in Christ, is it a passive love, a bump on the love love, or is it an, a proactive love, right? Did his love accomplish what it set out to accomplish? Or was it a pretty silent love? It just, he just sat in the corner, was there any doubt that he loved us? And when we look at the cross, we must say, no, there is no doubt. You see. So then how is the combination of love and spiritual gifts used in worship gatherings? What should it accomplish here? How do we know we have success, successfully done a worship service? Right? So what Paul seems to be saying here is, one of the chief end goals of us gathering together as believers is the edification of the body, the building up of the local church. Right? Specifically, in chapter 14, we have this idea that prophecy is greater than tongues. Why? Well, over and over he says, because tongues is for one person. Prophecy is for the church body. It's edifying to the community of believers. And first, we want to think about, why is Paul addressing this issue in the first place? Right, why is this an issue? Well, it seems that some of the Corinthian church thought that um, a display of, you know, a hyper sense of spirituality was speaking in tongues, right? And that's true of some Christian circles today, that the ultimate sign of being spiritual is speaking in tongues. And I look at Scripture and I think, no, that's maybe something like living the fruit of the Spirit <laughs> or being obedient. Paul places the community of believers above personal status and above like, your own individual need. Okay? So if you look at the passage today, verses 2 and 3, we see that tongues is not understood by people. Prophecy is, right? For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, in this comparison, right? The one who speaks prophecy speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So prophecy has these functions within the body. Okay? Upbuilding, encouragement, consolation. And then verse 4. Tongues is good for one person and while prophecy is beneficial for the body. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up or builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Right? And then he says it blatantly in verse 5. Now I want 
You also speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. This also gives us a sense, however, that... <clears throat> so, uninterpreted tongues is lesser than prophecy because it's beneficial for one person, whereas prophecy is beneficial for the community. Clear? It also seems that, at the end of verse 5, if tongues is interpreted, then its, it's, its level is raised, in a sense. It's not lesser, but maybe on par with prophecy. You see that? Because it's, it's been translated, it has now gone from unintelligible to intelligible, and we can all understand and be built up by it. You see? All right. Verse 6 through 12 are illustrations of the uselessness of uninterpreted tongues or an unintelligent language. You see? Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? So Paul is emphasizing the importance of, of being able to understand what is said, right? Because that is good for the community, right? Does that make sense? It's pretty clear. Can you imagine if Igor and the team, after I, after I finish preaching, Igor and the team get up and they're like, hey, uh, we're going to sing a song together, right? Oh, here we go. We're going to sing a song together. What are we singing? In Christ alone, okay. And then he's like, the next song, this is what we're going to sing. What are we singing? Uh, That's incorrect. Okay. So it's pretty clear. It has to be intelligible in order for all of us to, to be on the same page and understand, right? It's, it's a very clear example. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> so for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of gloss over that a little bit and go to verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Strive to excel in edification, building up the church. The main thrust, this is the main thrust of his argument so far, to strive to excel in building up the church. Right? Um, building, this idea of building up. I, uh, I'm not a builder, uh, for those of you who don't know me. I've, I can't build stuff worth squat. I can break stuff. That's, uh, that might be my spiritual gift. Right? Uh, if you noticed this morning... I live in a house that's right, right, next, right next door. Like, so church building, tiny parking lot, and then my house. And if you parked in that big parking lot over there, uh, and you walked past my house, you might have noticed that the porch looks a little junky. Right? Yeah, she's like, yes, it does. It looks horrible. <laughs> if I was your neighbor, I would file a report. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, so yesterday, Eugene, the guy who was doing the announcements, he, he came over at 8 on a Saturday, and he helped me tear out the, the floor of the porch. Is that the proper term? The floor. The part that you stand on. Because it was rotten, you know? And so we're, we're ripping it up. Um, and, then he, and then we laid that stuff down so when my mom visited, she wouldn't you know, just fall through a hole, which is very generous of you, right? Okay. Here's the point, though. Building up, is that an active activity or is it a passive activity? What if Eugene and I got together at 8 o'clock yesterday morning and we're like, we are going to remodel this porch. We laid out our tools. And then we waited. Hey, we just need a little more time. Hold on a second. What would happen to the porch? Nothing. 
it would remain rotten, right? You see what I'm saying? Or Pat Torrey. Pat Torrey is a contractor. Have you ever gone to a job site and just stood around and then it built itself? <laughs> He's like, if I could get paid for that. Yeah. Yeah. So here's the question for us, church, right? Is how can I build? How can, how can I be a part of this building process? How can I participate? Right? Who else in this church service can say they have been built up because I attended it, you see? How has your attendance here benefited anybody else? How can I change my mindset from what can I get out of this church service to who can I love during this church service? What can I personally experience change to who can I encourage? How can I change my mind from when is this, when is this going to be over? I, I need more time. There are more people that I need to encourage today. Right? Or how can I change my mindset from you know, it's really not a big deal if I don't go. I must go. I need them. And they need me. There's a building process happening. And I'm a part of that. Paul says it very clearly. Right? How can I change my mindset from, well, this is just another silly church event to this is a great opportunity for me to be proactive and take the initiative and build somebody up and to love them in Christ. The next section is verses 13 to 19. <clears throat> and this is uh, on the importance of intelligibility for the edification and instruction. Right? Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Why? Why should he pray that he may interpret? Well, so everyone can understand. And he talks about the fruitfulness of being able to understand and having your mind engaged. Right? And one of our... Uh, over and over again, he says in this, in this chunk of verses, one of our primary goals of gathering together as believers is the benefit of others, right? And it's really easy to lose that because what what I get for myself? Oh, you, Lionel, this, this is going to be a really silly kind of illustration, but I need you all to participate, okay? All right, here we go. Uh, hold on a second. I need everyone to take one finger. Take up one finger and point to yourself. All right, how many fingers are pointed at you? One. Very good. Okay, one. All right. Okay, we're going to start over. Now, I want you to point a finger at everybody else except for yourself. Go ahead, just try. How many fingers are pointed? Use, you can use multiple fingers. If you take a finger and point it at everybody else except for you, how many fingers are pointed at you? See, mathematically, this whole love others first thing works out, right? One finger to, I don't have enough fingers to count, you see. And that's kind of the idea that he's talking about. And then in verse 16, he says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving? What I think he's saying here is, if there is some kind of unintelligible speech going on in the church service, one who is part of the body is alienated, is put, is forced into the position of an outsider because he doesn't know what's going on. Right? If you're just jibber-jabbering and it's not computing in my mind, I'm lost. I feel like an outsider. Do you see? And then, in verse 19, he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Or sorry, this 18. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
10,000 is, is where we would get for like myriad. And I think Paul's being hyperbolic in the sense where he's not saying, you know, count my words up to 10,000 or count my words to five. He's like, I would rather speak five words that you can understand than a jillion that you don't understand, right? Because the profit for the body is the five words that you do understand, right? He's not expecting you to sit there, yes, one, worship, two. Like, that's not what he's talking about. He's, he's comparing the importance of intelligibility and unintelligibility. Things we can understand as a group and things we don't understand. Okay? Does that make sense to everyone? All right. Our last section here, verses 20 to 25. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Right? So he's saying your thinking is immature. Why? Because in their quest to seem super spiritual or on a higher plane of spirituality than other people, they expose themselves to be attention-seeking, self-serving individuals, much like children. I don't have children, but children are kind of like that, are they they not? Mommy, watch this! Right? And they just throw a potato on the ground as if it's something amazing. Mommy, watch this! Look at me! Right? It's immature thinking. How many, how many children, young children that you know, are, are totally selfless and always thinking of others? Not, not too many. And I'm not, I'm not accusing kids in the room, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Continue drawing. <All> right. <laughs> but the point here is that you don't think like children. Don't only think of yourselves, because that's what children do. Okay? All right. Uh, and then in verse 21, And the law is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, Will I speak to this people? And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So this, he is referring back to Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. And I'm going to read that. 28, 11. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people. So what is, what is Paul talking about here? Or why is he referring to this oracle from, from Isaiah? Well, this is an oracle as against God's people who have rejected him and who have refused to listen to, to God, even though he has tried in languages that they do understand. Right? He's tried in all those conventional ways. But here he is sending a message of judgment against his people through the Assyrians. The Assyrians and Israelites don't share the same language. Right? So judgment is being sent upon them in a language they do not understand. Right? So what is the point here? The point here is the unintelligible language is, is a sign of judgment on God's people, of alienation. Why? It did not bring forth repentance or faith, but it highlights alienation, being far from God. Okay? So he says, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. It's a bad sign because it highlights alienation. However, prophecy is a... Uh, well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? How is an outsider or an unbeliever supposed to be confronted with their sin if they don't know what's going on? Or the outworking of the gospel within the gospel community if they don't understand what is being said, you see. And then... He says, but, in verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, 
right? Because it's intelligible. He understands what's going on. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Okay? First, I think it's kind of neat where he uses this hypothetical situation and says, all, as if everyone is supposed to participate. But further, he, uh, in verse 25, Paul points to or alludes to Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 45, verse 14, or Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 23, and possibly Daniel, chapter 2, 46 to 47. Right? And what, is, what, are, what are these regarding? Well, these are prophecies regarding the conversion of Gentiles. One commentator says, the Corinthian believers have stepped into the role originally assigned to Israel in Isaiah's eschatological drama. Hence, the church is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about Israel. In other words, instead of alienation, the text points to the church as God's people as he uses them to gather unbelievers, you see. Okay. So, what about today? Are tongues and prophecy normative for today? And I'm going to use about 30 seconds because I don't think this is the main thrust of what Paul is talking about, right? Okay. Uh, So, the main thrust of what he is talking about is the use of spiritual gifts is good for the building up of the body, right? And he's using tongues here as an example of misuse of spiritual gifts, right? So, the goal, again, is love expressed specifically by way of edification, by building up. So I do, not, I do not think that tongues are normative for today in the same way that I don't think the office of apostle or office of prophet is normal, normative for today. There are certain experiences that are for a specific time and a specific purpose, right? So to use a kind of a ridiculous example, it would be something like, hey, uh, elders Eugene and Eric Steffens are going to wait in the church lobby and they have a church office, so bring your sick into their shadows, and they will be healed, right? Like that kind of idea, okay? I don't think that's normative today. I'm not saying that their healings cannot occur. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's not, it's not the normal Christian experience, you see. God can do as he wills, right? Okay. <clears throat> so, again, I don't want to get lost in the controversy. Do we do it today? The point is not, do I tongue and prophesy? That's not his point, okay? His main point is edify the church body. I also want to put out a warning, right? The warning is, in the hard pursuit of, hey, I want these showy gifts, I want, these, I want tongues and prophecy today, people lose sight of what God has preserved for us in his own revelation, right? They end up chasing these uh, heightened emotional experiences to speak in tongues rather than chasing, for example, edification of the church body or chasing obedience, Right? So, here we go. If you want a personal experience with God, just like the spiritual gifts thing, here's your outline. Personal experience with God. Uh, Step one, read the Bible. (laughs) Step two, do what it says. Step three, be an integral part of the church body. There's your personal experience. Okay? And what do we know for sure? We know for sure... This is what the Bible says about spiritual gifts again. One, every believer has at least one. Two, we are supposed to use it for the common good. Three, that love is necessary for the exercise of spiritual gifts, and it is, the, it is permanent. And four, the goal is for the building up 
and the edification of the church body. Does that make sense? Okay. That's all I have. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that you have saved and preserved for us. God, help us to be obedient. Help us to be a healthy church body, Lord, that seeks to, to honor you in all we do, in the way we worship you, but especially in the way we, we interact with each other and, and edify each other and encourage each other in the faith, Lord. Turn our eyes and our hearts away from ourselves. Help us to be selfless as you were for us. Lord, remind us of your beautiful love as we, as we look on the cross and remind we are reminded of how, how selfless and proactive your love is for us and how it accomplished all it set out to accomplish. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us that we may be able to say the same for ourselves. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.